We'll take our Bibles together to the book of Esther, chapter 3. Let's turn together to the book of Esther, chapter 3, here this evening, and we'll find our place in God's Word. Beginning in Esther, chapter 3, and picking up in verse 8. Esther, chapter 3, in verse 8. As you're turning there, I want to say a special thank you to all the many team members that it takes to pull off a service on any given Sunday. There's moving parts, there's lots of variables. We have faithful volunteers who joyfully and faithfully serve in all their various capacities, from worship team members to projections and slides to the audio-visual, all of it from beginning to end. I want to say thank you to you, Grace Church, and all of you who faithfully serve in those ways. Also, just a special thank you every time we gather for these unique services on the first Sunday of each month where we observe the Lord's table. Again, there's a whole group that makes it happen, and they serve Christ in this way. And most of it's behind the scenes. You'd never know, and they would never ask me to highlight it. But I just want to say I'm thankful for each one of you, uh, Mike and Laura Simmons, who prepare the elements of the table of the Lord, our elders who take time to stage it and prepare as well, uh, Kathy Berkelio, who makes the bread just month after month that we partake, and that's her unique and special ministry that she offers uh, to the Lord. Uh, just uh, those who will take all the glass elements and put them back and wash them and clean them. We just, we're th- grateful for all of you. And on any given Lord's Day, there are those serving in the nursery right now, so mommies and dads can sit still underneath the, the ministry of the Word and uh, be able to celebrate uh, his word together, but also the remembrance of the gospel. Uh, listen, church, we're grateful for you, every single one of you, from beginning to end. Just want you to know that. So we look here at the book of Esther, chapter 3. Let's look beginning in verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all the other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain, implication, remain alive. Verse 9, if it pleases the king, let a royal decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, I always struggle with that word, and the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are, are given to you. You go to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by courtiers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women. In one day, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions." A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out 
hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, and the city of Shushan was perplexed. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Our message title here this evening is When the Heathen Plot in Vain. We had the same message title last time together and made our way halfway through. And so tonight, our goal will be to complete our message, When the Heathen Plot in Vain. This is part two, Esther chapter three, and to complete Esther chapter three by God's grace here this evening. For those of you who have not been tracking with us, we've already seen up until this point as we've been studying the book of Esther that Really, the main enemy is introduced to us here in Esther 3. His name is Haman. We've already seen, number one, that the prejudice of Haman is shown to us as he positions for power. Verses 1 and 2 of this chapter show us that he is promoted. And it seemingly comes across as unjust in the sense of Haman appears to just be a man of influence, but a wealthy man. Maybe a man who has bought his way into office that is conjecture that we can't quite know, but it stands in contrast that Haman is elevated at the beginning of Esther 3, and at the end of Esther 2, Mordecai, who saves the king's life, all that's given to him is that his name and the events surrounding it are put into the king's chronicles, and then that's it. No, no, nothing praiseworthy, no additional day off of the month or the year, no vacation time, no thank you. It's just as if it just disappears into the wind. And so it's in that context, that juxtaposition, that Mordecai does something amazing, important, wonderful, saving Xerxes' life, and then there's no thank you, no advancement. And then here we see at the beginning of Esther 3 that Haman then is advanced. And as Haman is advanced, it is expected that all those around him show him homage and honor. And everyone does that. In verses 2 and 4, we saw last time together that Mordecai makes a declaration that he is a Jew and that he will not bow to Haman. Now we see Mordecai finding some backbone. We see him finding some stiffness, if you will, to his faith that he professes to have up until this point. The text and the Holy Spirit has emphasized for us that he is Mordecai the Jew but for the first time do we hear Mordecai taking this ownership of his ethnic background, making it clear, making it known, and he lets it be known that he is Mordecai and that he is a Jew, and therefore he will not bow to this Agagite named Haman. Well, this disobedience that Mordecai refuses to show homage and honor to Haman really shows the corrupt character of Haman as well. One man out of, no doubt, thousands, hundreds one man will not show him, quote-unquote, homage, and Haman's losing sleep at night over it. It just shows us his narcissism. It shows us his character. Who gives? Who cares? You're never going to get 100% of the vote, if you will. You're never going to please everybody. We understand this. This is common understanding. But here, Haman's narcissism will not let him rest. In fact, it's made known to Haman that this man is Mordecai. He will not bow, and that he is also a Jew. While we not, will not review the ancestry of Haman and Mordecai, what we've seen is according to the Old Testament, uh, Haman finds his tribe, his ethnic background, going all the way back to King Agag and the Amalekites. If you know anything about the Old Testament, the Amalekites were the ancient arch enemy of Israel. God ordered his people to destroy them. Saul disobeyed, disobedience 
led to the sparing, if you will, of some of the Amalekites, and you get the story. There's a long-held tension between the Agagites or the Amalekites and the people of Israel. So we saw the prejudice of Haman last time together. Secondly, we see here in our text the plot of Haman in verses 4 and 5. Haman, upon hearing the news of Mordecai's refusal to bow and understanding that he is a Jew, no doubt under the inspiration, the guidance of the wicked one under Satan, begins to make a plot here for genocide. To wipe out the people of God. Not just Mordecai, not just the one man who will not bow, but all of the Jews. This is insane. This is what you would describe as um, just insanity, for lack of any better word, just to put it on the bottom shelf. The plot of Haman in verses 5 and 6 includes that Haman calls for the soothsayers and the witches and those, if you will, of the spirit realm who are rumored to serve Satan, to serve their false gods, their Persian gods, to worship astrology, and they cast the purr, or that is the dice. And this purr tossing is to determine what would be the day, or the luckiest day, if you will, to, to follow the signs, to trust the spirits. What would be the luckiest day to plan to organize a genocide? Well, once the day was decided, Haman comes and he presents his case to the king. Notice there in verse 8, Haman goes to the king. And this is estimated to be a five years after Esther has been appointed as queen. Here in verse 8, we see that Haman presents a truth, a partial truth, and a lie to King Xerxes. Now, everything we've seen up until this point is Xerxes is an insecure ruler. He is a narcissistic ruler. He is a childlike ruler. He is not very uh, wise, to put it bluntly. He's not very um, sage. There's no any attempt to where he actually can think for himself. Everything that he does is through the wisdom or the advice of someone else. It's as if he hears a matter and just says, if he likes it, sure. If he doesn't like it, then no. If he does like them, he advances them. If he doesn't like them, then off with her head. Or if he doesn't like Vashti, if she displeases him, then she's no longer his queen. If he doesn't like what a general has done, as we've seen throughout historical records and archaeological records, he says, off with their heads. Here, Haman comes to him with a half-baked plan, a plot, and he presents it to the king. Notice the truth that is given, verse 8. There is a certain people, O king, scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Well, that's true. There's many peoples like that. It could be any number of hundreds and hundreds of subjugated people that he has control over. The truth. Here's the half-truth. And their laws are different from all the other people's laws, namely yours, O king. Well, that's a half-truth. They certainly do serve the king of kings, Yahweh, their covenant-keeping God, and yet they are under subjection to Yahweh's punishment that he's allowed his people to experience. They understand that. They know that. There's no attempt here to pull off some type of uprising. There's no attempt here to join in on any assassination plots. Simply go back to Esther chapter 2. When Mordecai hears of the, the plot, the potential assassination plot, what does he do? He tells the eunuchs, he tells Esther, he tells others, and it's revealed of what was planned. Then he presents an outright Lie. Notice what he says there, and they do not keep the king's laws. Haman here presents a fake problem to the king, and then he presents a murderous 
solution. In fact, Haman agrees to help pay for this solution. He offers to give 10,000 talents of silver into the king's treasury. And I've still been trying to wrap my mind around what that equates to in today's dollars, and I've given some different amounts. But the latest commentary, what I believe it means, is, to, is said to equate in today's dollars, well, not exactly today's dollars because of inflation, we understand that, but estimated to be $20 million into the king's treasury. A question we have is, where did Haman get this money? Many speculate, as we have already touched on, the fact that he was already a very, very wealthy man. But that is the obvious uh, speculation for the text is that he plans to take these resources from the murdered Jews and to help essentially cause them to pay for their own murder. They're allowed and agreed to plunder from them, to sell their properties, to liquidate their assets. And he would take these resources and put it right back into the king's treasury. So we see the plot of Haman. Now, just a reminder for us that Haman, much like Hitler, is not operating on his own accord. We see that through the course of history, ever since Genesis chapter 3, with the gospel proto-evangelium promise that was given to Adam and Eve, that Satan knows what is the plan of God as it was revealed. Satan knows that a redeemer, a savior, will come from the seed of the woman. Particularly as he's followed God's covenants and his promises, he, he understands that those who bless uh, those who bless and follow God's people, they will be blessed, and those who curse them will be cursed. Satan is aware of God's words. Satan knows God's word better than anyone. But yet Satan raises up people throughout history, and even in this own present hour, to continue to destroy and to attempt to eradicate and destroy God's people. Do not look at Haman as simply a madman on his own accord. Listen, Haman is energized by the spirit of Satan. Hate is simple enough, a part of the fall. Certainly men who are unregenerated and men who are regenerated must mortify the effects of the fall, the sins of the flesh, and hatred whenever it would dare creep up in our hearts and our minds against ethnic people groups or that type of thing. But this is more than that. Um, so we see that. I just want to make that point. We need to see the constant work here, the tension in the work of Satan here in the text. Well, we see that the king responds with permission. Notice with me verse 10. The king took his signet ring from his hand, and he gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And he said, these people, succinctly, briefly, the money and the people, they're given to you, Haman, to do with them as seems good to you. Now, just revisiting the text and preparing the message, this just rubs me wrong in every way. How can a king hear a proposal, hear a plan to wipe out thousands of Jews all over his provinces and ask no questions about it? Now, to be clear, he doesn't even know they're Jews. There's no questions of King Xerxes uh, to really inquire of this matter at all. And to me, that just reveals so much more about his character and, and who he is. But this is a dumb king. It's amazing he's made it this far as long as he has. It's amazing this man is ruling an empire as vast and as great as it is. Now, he is a unique king. He's reigning over the known empire of the world at this time. But as we look at inspired scriptures, the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. He makes no inquiry about killing a number of the people who were under his rule and care. No questions whatsoever. No inquiries. 
No thoughts, no let me think about it, no inquiring of a cabinet, no seeking of wise men, no asking why they deserve it, no verifying in the mouth of two or three witnesses whether what Haman has said uh, is true. In fact, he did not even know that one of them was his own wife, Esther, and how it would affect her. I just want to hit pause here as we think about leadership. None of us here are kings. We recognize that. We want to make application to the text here of what a foolish king is and what a wise king is. But I would just simply say for all of us in the sense of just wisdom and relationships and vocations and calling, it's just a reminder to us, Scripture is not silent. Scripture doesn't stutter over the need for us to be cautious, over the need to be careful, over the need to take time, as we know in our New Testament language, to pray and to seek the mind of the Lord and the will of the Lord. just want to give you two or three Proverbs here that would shed some light on the foolishness of Xerxes. Proverbs 25.2, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. We call these the mysteries of God, the mysteries of the Lord. It is His glory to conceal a matter, but... It is also the glory of kings to search out a matter. God had high expectations for those in delegated rulership and delegated leadership. And all kings, all rulers, are not rulers in their own right or their own accord. There's a weight to the office. There's an expectation to the position. And it's to serve the people to glorify their creator, God. And it is the glory of kings to search out difficult conundrums. Kings need wisdom. Listen, we, we can't even fulfill our budget sometimes without just flipping our brain. We, we learn a new software and we're like, this thing is maxing me out. Uh, we, we, we have everyday problems in our everyday life and that's just running our own little lives, much less running a, a county or a city or coming with problems. And Kings served in a multifaceted way and were often called upon to uh, solve problems, and to, you get the idea. Solomon, we see an example of Solomon who wrote the book of Proverbs, having all types of problems brought to him, and he was able to discern the mind of the Lord. He had the wisdom and the gift of God to do it. But here we see Xerxes, of course, is no Solomon, but still what Scripture speaks of what is required of kings still stands, whether Solomon or not. And I just remind all of us that we not only, don't, not only see Xerxes as a, as a very bad king, but it's just a reminder to all of us to be careful, to walk in humility, particularly those that God has entrusted with some type of leadership position and, a, and however that may apply to you. Proverbs 18, 13 would certainly have application for all of us. Notice here, he who answers a matter before he hears it, implication here is the whole of it, it is a folly to him and it is shame to him. What do we have here? Haman simply brings a plot, a matter, in the language of Solomon, and he does not hear, Xerxes does not hear the whole of it. He just hears it quickly, swiftly. Yeah, sure, Haman, kill thousands of people. Here's my signet ring. Go and do with it what you will. One more for us. Proverbs 18, 17. The one who pleads his cause seems, the, one who, the first one who pleads his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Actually, one more for us. Proverbs 24.10. If you faint in the day of adversity, then your strength is small. Deliver those who are drawn towards death and hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he, God, who weighs the hearts, consider it? 
leaders who hold lives in the balance have great responsibility to prevent and to keep and to exercise the sword of justice wisely, justly, and carefully. Again, does he, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And notice here, and will he not render to each man according to his deeds? Well, there's more to the story regarding Haman. And yes, Yahweh will render to each, not only according to his deeds, more succinctly, Haman will reap what he is sowing. Well, our point here, just as we've hit pause, is to apply just the foolishness of this king who does no soul work, no examination, and simply gives Haman, as we see here in our text, the authority to act on his behalf. Xerxes hands over his signet ring to Haman, the text tells us. This is giving him full authority to act on his behalf. You know this. You've seen it in movies. You've seen it in Robin Hood and ancient books of past that we enjoy this is carried all the way to even a tradition to even today that families and clans have a, a coat of arms that signify their family. Well, each king would have a coat of arms, key symbols that would represent this is King Xerxes. This is his stuff. This is his word. This is his decree. And as men would go forth claiming to represent the king, they would say, where's the king's signet? And the man who would ever would dare to be a herald or to represent the king must prevent a parchment, a document that is sealed with wax that has the king's signet inscription, his coat of arms, his key symbols. That wax would be hot when put upon the document. And then the signet ring would be put upon the wax and then it would cool and harden. And that would be delivered to the other potentates, the other prime ministers, the mayors, the governors, the rulers all over the provinces. Haman now has the full green light to take the king's signet ring, which equals his signature, and to go forth and to announce the authority, the decree, to destroy the Jews to every leader in the land. Not only is he given authority to act, notice there in verse 11, Haman is given the authority to steal. Notice what Xerxes says to him, the money and the people, they're given over to you, Haman, to do with them what seems good to you. Not only the genocide of these people, but to take everything that they have, to liquidate their resources, their assets, to fund the king's treasury. And the implication here is to fund your own pockets and hatred. Haman. So we see the permission granted. Fourthly, we see the proclamation that goes forth beginning there in verse 12. Notice with me in the text. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month. And a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people. Notice this phrase, to every province according to its script and to every people in their language. Haman has a lot of work to do. He has a lot of preparatory work to do. It's estimated that there was as many as 127 different languages within the Persian Empire. Haman here assembles the king's scribes to write out these orders that he is literally carrying out. He's writing out himself. That they translated into these different tongues of the provinces. And that they be given over so the people can read it. And then that that be carried out 
on the appointed day. Notice verse 13 documented, These letters were sent out by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. Did you notice that in verse 13? Both young and old, little children and women. Who is involved in this genocide? It's those who can't even feed themselves, little ones who can't even run yet. They crawl across the floor and many who are still in their mother's wombs. It also involves those who can no longer hear. They wouldn't even have enough ability to run away from the sword. Those who have lost their sight, the elderly. This encompasses both the young and the old and everyone in between. If you've been following in any way, the, what's been happening over in Israel beginning on October the 7th and extending even to this hour, what we find is that this is still happening even today. The crimes that have been committed, particularly on the initial day and the days following, but particularly on that initial attack, are so horrific, I don't even want to even try to convey it. It's so, it'll make you want to puke, it'll make you want to throw up when you hear about what Hamas and their soldiers did to the defenseless, not against soldiers, but against the defenseless, against those like who are represented in this decree, the young and the old, those who can't even defend themselves. This is the wicked plot of Haman. Well, it's not just the young and the old. This is comprehensive. It's to kill all the Jews. And the question that maybe comes to mind is, is well, how would they know who the Jews were? I just want to remind us, go remember that half-truth that Haman gave to Xerxes. It wouldn't be hard to recognize who the Jews were. Remember, they are a called-out people. They are a different people. We've already looked at the lukewarmness of Mordecai when we talked about how seemingly in the text it seems as if he's not following up until this point any of really what is the protocol for God's people. It seems as if he's a closet Jew, if you will. That's why the Holy Spirit continues to tell us Mordecai the Jew, because Mordecai was not confessing that, if you will. Obviously, Esther has made it to the king's palace, and no one knows that she is a Jew. But that is not the norm. How will they know who the Jews are? Well, the Jews were not only a called-out people, we know that, but try to think of it through the eyes of the Persians, the Gentiles. They see the Jews, and the Jews were a different people. They adhered, of course, to King Xerxes' laws, but they also adhered to another king's laws, some god that they worshipped. In fact, they observed their own special days and holidays throughout the year. They were a plain people. They had odd behaviors and rituals and habits. Uh, they would not give their daughters in marriage to the Persian sons, and they wouldn't accept other people's daughters for marriage to their sons. They were unusual, and they had these strict limitations about intermarrying and those types of things. In fact, there was even a day of the week where they wouldn't do business. They would ref refuse to do business, and they would remain amongst themselves, and they would worship their God that they rested, and they would rest, and they would worship their God that they worshiped. Here's the picture we're trying to paint, because they knew who the Jews were. The Jews who were in exile were distinctive, and they would know who they were because of their faith and because of their practice. Well, verse 14 reveals to us that Haman's 
proclamation and his plan was not only written down and documented, but notice here that it is now taken and delivered into every province, being published, verse 14, for all people, that they should be ready for that day. They have weeks and months to prepare for the appointed day and the appointed hour. Notice verse 15, and the king's couriers went out. This would be Persia's uh, example, if you will, of a U.S. Postal Service, or the very first Pony Express, as we would call it. In fact, Haman is said, commentator said, Haman used the Persian postal system to send this decree out to every corner of the province. And here's why that's of note. Herodotus, the Greek historian, is quoted to say this, Nothing mortal travels as fast as these Persian messengers. Along the road, men were stationed with horses, allowing one man and one horse for each day. And these men will not be hindered from their accomplishing at their best speed the distance which they have to go either by snow or rain or heat or by the darkness of night. It was estimated that these couriers that our text tells us, the Persian Postal Service, service could take a message from Shushan, the capital, or where the king was, to in two or three weeks' time to the full span of the empire. Remember, verse 2 of chapter 1 reveals to us how vast this empire is. To maybe put that into perspective, these couriers could take the message from the king within two or three weeks on horseback. An ordinary traveler traveling the same distance, it's estimated, would take up to three months to get to their appointed destination. Here, here's the key while we've taken the time to look at it. Is Haman is intent and he's bent on getting this decree out to every required leader who can execute for the citizens, communicate to the citizens, communicate to those to take up the sword and to slaughter the Jews. Well, as we come to the conclusion here at the end of chapter 3, notice in verse 15, there's a subtle note here of weight. This, is, this has been missing from the whole chapter. Where we should have seen some sobriety from the king, where we should have seen some weightiness. Is there an adult in the room, if you will? We see that the corporate assumption of the city, the deliberation of the city, is one of somberness. They're confused. In fact, notice in Shushan itself, verse 15 tells us that as the couriers go out, the very last phrase as this proclamation is proclaimed, the city of Shushan was perplexed. You could say troubled. They know their king is unstable. The record's clear. We've pointed to illustrations of that. This is the king that has ordered the ocean to be whipped and anyone who would ever disappoint him having them killed and slain. But the city of Shushan was perplexed. Well, notice that contrast that the city and the citizens are perplexed but what about the king and Haman? Well, just the words just before. So the king and Haman sat down to drink. Here the king and Haman have a beer. They're celebrating the plan. Haman is ecstatic that this is all working. Ahasuerus, Xerxes, is just simply drinking for the sake to drink. If you remember back to his parties in chapter 1, the man was consumed with drink. But yet the city of Shushan is perplexed. Why do you think they were perplexed? They should be perplexed. But if your king orders 
Now, I don't have the stats here because the text doesn't real, reveal to us, but I'm going to throw a number out there. We know it's thousands. But if your king orders, this is not, they don't represent a third. So just take what I'm saying for an example. A third. Or let's say there's two Jews that live in your street. And over here, there's three Jews that live in your street. You know who they are. And your king orders them to be killed. If he would order all of that people group to be killed, what about us? Are we next? Knowing Xerxes and his character, noting the comprehensiveness of this decree, this city, the city of Shushan, has every right to be perplexed. In fact, you could say it like this. Xerxes and Haman are often like a lot of our modern politicians. Not in the sense they order people to be killed in that way. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But in their leadership positions, they allow themselves to be wined and dined and entertained by donors while they remain completely detached from the people that they claim to serve. Let's just get right to the heart. Those that they're called to protect. I could give one illustration of just pointing to abortion alone. They're fat cats enjoying their positions, padding their bank accounts. And yet those that they're called to serve, the defenseless, the least of these, we could give other illustrations as well. These men are completely detached. Walk into Washington poor, and they leave very, very wealthy. Well, Proverbs warns us about these kinds of rulers. Lives are at stake. Blood is being shed because of the decisions that they make. Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Here, Shushan is perplexed. No doubt there is groaning taking place. Proverbs 28, 28, when the wicked arise, men hide themselves, but when they perish, the righteous increase. While Ahasuerus and Haman are rejoicing, the city is perplexed. Literally, it means filled with uncertainty. What prompted this? What is happening? One commentator says this, while the king and Haman drank, the city was distressed. After all, if one race of people can be wiped out by the decree of the king, what about others? Governments that are evil not to produce, excuse me, governments that are evil do not produce peace in the hearts and minds of their people. Rather, they produce troubling hearts and minds. Well, we see here that Haman, at the conclusion of chapter 3, is ecstatic to the point of drunkenness. He's partying. He's living it up. But do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Galatians 6, what a man sows, that he will also reap. This is not the end of the story. In fact, it brought to mind an illustration of a Jew who went to hear one of, uh, in fact, very bravely, one of Hitler's rallies in Munich at the height of his kind of rallying the German people. While Hitler was in the middle of one of his epic speeches against the Jews, this particular Jew was in the crowd and all alone, he stood out because he was laughing at everything Hitler said and his manic expressions of rage. Later, Hitler had the opportunity to address the man, and he asked him how he dared to laugh while, while he was speaking. Hear, hear what he had to say. At least this is what he allegedly said. The man said, well, I am a Jew. You are not the first ruler who's tried to destroy us in our history. Once Pharaoh uh, wanted us slain, and now every year at the Passover we eat, and excuse me for not pronouncing this right, matzoth, a particular type of food and celebration. 
of his defeat. Later, a man named Haman tried to annihilate us, so each year we eat the delicious delicacy of manitation. Again, I know I'm not saying that right. Then the man said this, he says, And I couldn't help but laughing and wondering, what delicacy will we eat to commemorate your downfall? I hope that's true. And by everything I could find, it was verified to to be true. Well, friends, we don't always feel like laughing, but this man had a right perspective. He had the perspective that is given to us at the end of Habakkuk. He has the perspective that is unveiled for us by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. While we don't always understand what is happening or what is taking place, we can know that God is working. In fact, you can say it like this, he's never not working. We saw that this morning as well as we talked about the sovereign hand of God and his providence in our everyday lives. Well, here in Esther chapter 3 as we finish, it's a reminder to us in our conclusion that God is sovereign over lots that are cast. He is sovereign over letters. Just a point. Imagine that if the Purim, if the purr, the dice that was cast, had fell for the following week or just a short period of time. God in his sovereignty allowed for it to fall in the exact, almost a good number of months, almost to the, a year later it seems, uh, to allow lots of time for not only the word to spread, but for God's plans and purposes ultimately to stand, to prepare for his providential ways and purposes. Listen, God is sovereign over lots, over letters, And he's also sovereign over the end of chapter 2, inscriptions in the chronicles of the king that will come back to play a major part in this story. Remember that no matter what his enemies plan, God will always preserve his people. Now, as we look into this text, we, we understand that there's a lot of that taking place on the scenes of current headlines even today. We think about, I mentioned already, Hamas's attack upon on Israel. It was estimated that 1,500 people were slaughtered, literally slaughtered uh, in that area and on that particular day with the numbers continuing to rise. I want to make application. I've already mentioned abortion. I've already mentioned wickedness. I've already mentioned uh, that in a different way. But I would just say this. We see the Jews being attacked today. We are in one sense to pray for anyone we're told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We understand that. But I want to just remind us as a church, I'm not preaching on this, but I, want to, I have a specific application I want to give in conclusion. But I want to say this. Israel has the right to defend itself. They have a right to defend themselves against attacks. I mean, that's clear and plain. But I also want to remind us that amidst that, and while we support that, Israel is also under the judgment of God. And they've been under the judgment of God for their rejection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not telling you what's happening is because of this or because of that. But I just want to tell you that we can't forget that. We cannot forget God's purposes in all of those things. But I want to tell you, God still has a plan for Israel. He is not done with his people. Now, I just want to make that clear, just in case you were wondering. But we are hypocritical as Americans if we get all charged up, and we should, don't hear what I'm not saying, about the elderly and the defenseless. And if you know, you know. That's all I'm going to say, what's happened over there. But we're hypocritical if we don't get just as worked up about it happening every day and every hour underneath our own nose here. The headlines have been telling us about little ones who were 
slaughtered. Friends, I just want to tell us, remind us, that little ones are slaughtered every day on this, in our own soil. We cannot act like, I took time to kind of describe the responsibility of kings. Well, there's responsibility upon us as citizens to not be ignorant of what's taking place. I tried to Google some statistics just to maybe have some fresh ideas. And believe it or not, it was more difficult than I thought. I gave it 15 minutes, and I was still getting, I tried to be as accurate as possible. Uh, Here in the pulpit, it's important to give facts and the truth. And even when you're giving extra biblical literature or facts or statistics, to be as accurate as possible. And I'll just be honest with you, Google made that difficult. And I won't go any further in that direction. But according to my best estimates, in the year 2020 alone, in just 2020, close to a million abortions were performed just in America. Friends, that is absolutely horrendous. And you say, LeGrand, how did you get abortions from Esther chapter 3? Well, I don't have to, per se. It's, just, it's, it's a sin of our land. I'll stand up and talk if I feel led to by the Holy Spirit of God. But I'll just say this. Many people have been rightfully moved the headlines of seeing particularly what we see on the battlefronts of babies and little ones killed unjustly, even those who would not speak for the unborn here in this land. But friends, that's hypocritical. That's the point I'm trying to make. Listen, all of this is injustice, and it's all wrong, and it's all horrendous, and we should be continuing to pray and petition and to stand for the abolishment of all sin and all injustice in our land, not just the sin of abortion, but friends, the blood of the little ones cries out. And so Christians cannot be silent. We cannot be hypocritical as we look at what's happening even in our own days. We see over there in Israel, and we, we see the headlines, and we say that's horrific, that's wrong, that's completely, we want justice to stand and then ignore it across the street. I'm excited to tell you and grateful to tell you that our church not only prays, and is it ever enough? No, I'm sure we can always be improving in injustices that we see in this town and this, in this land. But I am also grateful to tell you that we are doing what we can. We support those who labor, particularly in this field, in this area. We will continue to do so. We'll continue to ask the Lord, give us insight in how we can confront um, all the things that we need to confront, beginning in our own hearts, judgment beginning at the house of God. Well, may the Lord give all of us wisdom and discernment as we live in this cultural moment in the, in the here and now. May we continue to trust His providential hand. May we continue to rest in Him and Him alone. And may we continue to rest in his gospel, for it is the only thing that will sustain us. It's the only thing that gives us hope as we see the uncertainty of the times and and all of those things. May the Lord continue to give us strength as we worship him together, serve him together with one heart, one mind, one soul. And now as we gather around the table of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for Esther. We thank you for this ancient book that is not just ancient, it is inspired in a living book and has power and pertinence and lessons for us even today. Father, we pray that you would continue to lead us as we as your people study your truth and continue this particular focus walking through this special book. Father, we do repent before you here this evening. We would be remiss, Lord, to not highlight the sins of our nation and our land and not follow the example and the leadership of Nehemiah who mourned over the sins of his own people in Nehemiah chapter 1. Father, we repent. We repent for our lukewarmness. Father, we repent for our being at ease in Zion. 
Father, we repent in our lethargy and our apathy. We repent of anything, Lord, that is um, checked out as far as our spiritual life. Father, our nation is going to hell. Seemingly every single day, it's changing, it's rejecting, rejecting. We certainly understand, Father, that our nation is experiencing the wrath of God. In the sense of you are completely letting us have everything we want to have. All the idols that our nation wants, Father, you're letting us have them. Everything that we worship instead of you and in place of you, Father, you're not preventing us at all. You're letting us have everything we want. And Father, it is the sure sign of your judgment. Father, thank you for your church. Lord, thank you that you've not given up on us completely yet. I don't mean the church, I just mean our, our nation in the sense of the church is still shining. We desire to be faithful. Father, we desire to, that our salt has effect and is salty. Father, we desire that our light will shine in a beautiful way, not for our own purposes or our own glory or anything that would bring us attention, but Lord, that we would shine in such a way as you taught us in your word that let our light so shine before men that they may glorify their Father who is in heaven. Father, would we continue to be a preserving presence as we take your gospel forth into the public square as we live it faithfully. Father, this land would change overnight if your people would not be silent. If we were faithful, if we were vocal, if we were visible, Lord, if we bore fruit, if we stood up against all the wickedness that we see, Lord, there would be no power enough to stop it. Father, the few brave souls that we see in our land who have enough backbone and fear of God to, to lose everything but not forsake the will or the path that you have ordained for them are those who, Lord, they make the most headlines, those who are sued, those who are taken to court. But Lord, would you give us a fear of you that surpasses every other fear of man? Would you help us to stand where you've called us to stand, not to seek any claim or glory for ourselves, but where you've placed us to not bow, Lord, when your word will not let us bow. To not bow when your spirit will not let us bow. We pray that you'd give us courage and conviction and backbone to understand the priorities and the values that we must have. To love you, your word, your church. To lay down our life for all these things that we hold dear. To not only do it for our nation and those that we love where we live, but Lord, to do it for our king and his kingdom. And Father, we desire to be faithful to all that you've entrusted to us, to all that you've given to us. As we rehearse and look here towards the table of the Lord as you've commanded us, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us, that you give us hope. We pray that you would continue to lead us by your Spirit. We pray that you would continue to answer our prayers as they are in accordance to your word, O oh God. We pray that you would give us strength and conviction. We rest in Christ. And it's your precious name we pray. Amen.